Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, first Wednesday in August, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We're following up on the Russia-Ukraine conflict today. It's been a, been a while since we dedicated a show to discuss the state of affairs with the Russian invasion, and it's time for an assessment of the conflict. Our guest today is Professor Michael Kimmich from uh, Catholic University in Washington, D.C., uh, although he is in Germany right now, so there's a significant time difference for us uh, as we talk with uh, Professor Kimmich. Uh, Professor Kimmich joined us back in uh, January for an in-depth discussion on the history of Russian-Ukrainian uh, relations and, and sort of a midwinter uh, coverage on the situation inside uh, Ukraine. Uh, Michael Kimmich has wide-ranging academic policy and think tank experience. His expertise is on the former Soviet Union, the transatlantic relationship, and the history of U.S. foreign policy. His particular area of focus is the U.S.-Russian relationship. Uh, professor Kimmage is a professor at the Catholic University of America, where he is the chair of the history department. He's the author of The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trilling, Whitaker Chambers, and The Lessons of Anti-Communism, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2009. And the book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, published by Basic Books in 2020. From 2014 to 2016, Professor Kimmich served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's a frequent contributor to Foreign Affairs, the New Republic, the National Interest, International Politique, and War on the Rocks. Uh, Professor Kimmich is chair of the advisory board at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, and he serves on the advisory board of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Professor Michael Kimmage, welcome back to National Security This Week. Great to be back with you, John. Uh, I, I'm, I was really pleased to, to, to know that you were able to join us all the way from Germany today while on vacation, we might add. Uh, so thank you for uh, spending a little, a little more time with us to discuss these topics. Uh, there are lots of topics I want to cover with you this morning, but I'll begin with this. What is the state of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Where, where do things stand right now from your perspective as a historian? Okay, let's start with uh, with Russia. And, you know, there are sort of big picture and smaller picture answers to your uh, question. I think the big picture, it's important not to lose sight of for Russia, is one that is quite frustrating to Moscow. They began the war with really some extremely ambitious political agendas to control half Ukrainian territory, to recreate the Ukrainian state, to sort of create a new government there. Um, that failed within the first month of the war. Uh, and I think it's sort of self-evident that at the moment, wherever the war may go, that Russia is not in the position to take any of Ukraine's major cities for a very, very long time to come. They don't have the wherewithal. Uh, that would be really very costly. These cities have now uh, become even more heavily defended than they were in February uh, of 2022. And so the political agenda that Russia used to begin the war, had at the beginning of the war, is out of reach for Russia. And I don't see any short to medium term way for them to get back to where that's uh, viable. Uh, and that doesn't amount to Russia's defeat. Uh, but it's important to remember, as we look at these incremental battlefield shifts of the last couple of months, that this is the big picture story uh, for Russia. I'll just stick with Russia for 
uh, a moment. What Russia is doing, as I think all of uh, your listeners uh, are well aware, John, is battling against the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, and it is true that Ukraine has not taken a great deal of territory really since uh, November of last year, but over the last six, seven uh, months. Uh, and that's sort of the major task uh, uh, for Russia to deal with um, the Ukrainian onslaught. Uh, and beyond that, what Russia has begun to do, you know, sort of two phases of this approach. Uh, in the first part of the war, what Russia tried to do was to destroy Ukraine's electrical grid. Uh, and it especially did that last winter when uh, there were particular needs that Ukrainians had from their uh, electricity system. That just didn't pan out for Russia. They never managed to, you know, sort of do enough to really knock uh, the lights out in Ukraine. Uh, and so what they've shifted to over the last couple of weeks and, and months is an attack on Ukrainian grain supply. Uh, and this is a twofold uh, project for Russia to um, degrade the Ukrainian economy, uh, take away uh, access to markets for one of Ukraine's major export goods, raise the price of grain, uh, and in doing so, uh, you know, serve the needs of the Russian economy because Russia is also a major global supplier uh, of grain. So there's, a, there's an economic component to the war, which before was focused more on electricity, now uh, more on food, and, 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 and that's a pretty important part of the war. Uh, but in general, for, for Russia, not just a mixed picture, but a pretty grim picture for Moscow, uh, I would say. Uh, for Ukraine, uh, they're fighting, in effect, two wars. The, the battlefield war that they're fighting, uh, I don't think I would say it's going badly for Ukraine. 80% of Ukrainian territory remains very much under uh, Ukrainian control. I think the city of Kiev, which is still under constant attack, the air defenses there have gotten uh, quite good. Uh, and uh, the Ukrainian military is, you know, sort of learning uh, and continues to get increased levels of support from the United States, uh, European partners and partners around uh, the globe. So the coalition that formed around Ukraine in the first month of the war, uh, a year and a half ago, that coalition is very much still there. And the very long term trend lines for Ukraine, whether you're talking about air power, artillery, ammunition, uh, you know, sort of other aspects of warfare, all of those long term trend lines uh, are good for Ukraine. So that's um, one aspect of the war that's sort of a big picture uh, part of it that's also very important, I would say, uh, not to lose sight of. The other part of the war, and this is going to be harder for Ukraine, no doubt, is the political part of the war. Wars are not just one on the battlefield, but there's a strong political component. And there was probably a somewhat unwise uh, overinvestment in the counteroffensive, where it was built up to be a kind of climactic moment of the war, or a repeat of the offensive around Kharkiv in, in uh, September and October of 2022 that was spectacularly successful for Ukraine. And that's just not the situation. Russia has heavily mined the territory. They've had a lot of time uh, to dig in. Russia has learned a few things. They're exploiting certain elements of, of air superiority that they have uh, in that uh, theater, and it's been really tough going uh, for Ukraine. So it doesn't mean that the U.S. is going to pull out support or Germany is going to pull out support or anybody. It doesn't mean that morale has gotten worse in Ukraine. But the political part of the war is going to be complicated uh, to navigate, and that's probably the really big challenge that uh, the Zelensky government faces. If other governments slowly start to say, well, you know, what's the end game? Where are we going here? How quickly, how fast, how definitively? Zelensky is going to have to come up with good answers in that regard. I do want to return more to uh, discussions on the Ukraine side and, and certainly uh, President Zelensky. But uh, let's let's first half of this show. I'd like to kind of concentrate more on the Russian side, if we could. Now, just sure. about everybody has 
<clears throat> excuse me, has heard of the Wagner Group, you know, private military contractor or PMC as we refer to it, uh, that serves the Kremlin's foreign policy interests. Uh, people join the Wagner Group uh, under a contract. In other words, they're, they're paid for their services, including to engage in combat operations. And to me, that sounds like a mercenary organization. Uh, by using Wagner overseas, uh, the Kremlin can kind of distance in, uh, or even out. I should say, outside of Russia's uh, direct boundaries. Uh, so that includes uh, Ukraine. The Kremlin can kind of distance itself, itself from the many kind of criminal acts that have been perpetrated by the PMC, which is <clears throat> convenient from an international relations perspective. Now, the former head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, led what appeared to be a very short-lived revolt against uh, against Russian military leadership, is the way he framed it. Obviously, that's sort of an attack on the political leadership as well by default. Uh, that putsch failed. Uh, I, I like to use the word putsch because you're sitting in Germany and you speak fluent German. Uh, there have been many uh, interesting outcomes that have transpired since. Uh, now, uh, you wrote an article uh, with Liana Fix talking about the beginning of the end for Putin. Uh, this was uh, Prigozhin's rebellion ending quickly, but it spells trouble for the Kremlin. Uh, what, what do you make of this, uh, this situation with Prigozhin? What happened to spark the revolt? Uh, can you provide some assessment for us on what Prigozhin's uh, goal was for the revolt? Maybe comment on what has happened since. Sure. So, you know, the mutiny itself, as as, as you mentioned, it took place on the 24th of, uh, of June. Uh, and in some ways it had some comic opera uh, elements. Uh, it went very quickly. Um, it was strangely bloodless in the end, apart from the 12 to 14 Russian soldiers that lost their lives at the hands of uh, Wagner on the 24th of uh, of June, and there was a kind of bizarre negotiated conclusion to it involving the president of uh, of Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, Putin himself, of course, uh, and Prigozhin. And Prigozhin was sort of um, punished in a way. Putin said that it was a stab in the back and, and treason in a news conference that Saturday morning, and then by Saturday evening, Putin was already singing a different tune. Prigozhin happened to pop up this past week at the Russia-Africa summit, and uh, you know he's still obviously, uh, you know, a free citizen uh, in uh, in Russia and kind of uh, doing what whatever he's doing. It's a little bit difficult uh, to say. So one way of interpreting the event, uh, so to give you two interpretations, and I favor a bit more the second one, but the first way of interpreting this event is a, is a kind of blip. Uh, you know, sort of Wagner will be Wagner, boys will be boys, uh, and these kinds of things. Uh, you know, sort of happen now and then. It's true. If you look at the history of uh, antiquity, you see a lot of rogue generals running around. One of them was Julius Caesar, who, you know, sort of took his soldiers, marched on Rome and sort of took uh, power that way. So it's not without precedent. It's very much without precedent in the U.S. military context, that's for sure, but maybe not completely without precedent uh, elsewhere. Uh, you know, if you want to see this as a blip, what you would also emphasize is that Prigozhin did not describe this as a revolution. He was not trying to unseat Putin. In fact, he's not anti-war, although he sounds like that uh, at times. Uh, in some ways, it's a kind of personnel dispute between Prigozhin on the one hand, this military contractor, uh, and, you know, Shoigu and Gerasimov, the two highest ranking military figures in the conventional Russian military. And there's a lot of hatred and interpersonal dynamics that was getting played out uh, on that uh, on that strange day. And finally, if you want to look at this as a blip, you would just say, well, you know, Putin doesn't seem less powerful now than he was two, three months ago. He's still very much in charge. The war is ongoing. It hasn't affected even Wagner's operations in uh, Ukraine or in Africa uh, or elsewhere. So it's just a kind of isolated 
uh, weird incident. But I would take a second interpretation uh, of this uh, and emphasize some of what's really ominous for Putin in this regard and would here make just three quick points. You know, sort of one uh, is that uh, there's a lot of discontent at the front. You know, you don't have an uprising like this without a lot of angry soldiers. I don't know if they're angry about the fact that Russia's fighting the war. I don't know if they're angry about how they're being paid, how they're being treated, how they're being made to fight. That I wouldn't be able to say, but I think the anger uh, is palpable. This month, the seven, this war is 17 months old for Russia. It has not gone well. If I would be a Russian soldier, I would not know what I would be fighting for in Ukraine. I simply wouldn't know. And that's not good news for the military or for political elites uh, in the Kremlin. And that, I do not think, has gone away in the last six to eight weeks. Whatever the arrangement that's been with Prigozhin, that discontent is still there, and it will be a political factor in Russia. Secondly, Prigozhin was willing to challenge the boss. That's unbelievable. Uh, that has not happened in the 22 years that Putin has been in power. Everybody who's come up against Putin as a potential rival, you know, whether it's Navalny or Yemtsov or others, uh, has either been jailed uh, or killed. Uh, and they've never come close to gaining power uh, in the Kremlin. Prigozhin didn't come that close, but he did challenge uh, the powers that be. And in, in that sense, he kind of took the mystique away from Putin. Putin is not invulnerable. Uh, you know, he can be challenged. And I think that take me, takes me to my third point, and this is what Liana Fix and I argued in that piece, is if you're sitting around in the Kremlin now and you're kind of wondering what does Russia look like after Putin, and if you're going to conclude that some faction that has access to military power or secret police power or security state power is going to make a move, you don't want to be the fourth or fifth person who makes the move. You want to be the first person. So there's now incentive because Prigozhin has made that challenge uh, to take the initiative and be the next person to be the first person who sort of challenges the boss and wins the spoils. And so I think that that's a new dynamic. And, you know, I'm not predicting the fall of Putin or that anything big is going to happen in the next six months uh, or a year, but it's a pretty big crack to appear on the edifice. Yeah, before we uh, do a quick uh, station ID break, uh, there was an you, so you publish in War on the Rocks on occasion. Uh, there was a piece by Anatoly uh, Pinsky that came out on just July 26th, uh, just about a week ago, uh, titled Prigozhin as Petitioner, Making Sense of the March for Justice. And what they talk about here is, is sort of this history of the delivery of a petition to the quote-unquote autocrat in Russian history. Uh, it, it, do you see some of that taking place with this, or, or is it, or, or is that too simplistic? Uh, it, it may be true. Uh, you know, a comic way of looking at this is that Prigozhin wanted a meeting with the boss, and you know, he marched on Washington, <laughs> marched on Moscow, and he got the meeting with the boss. So, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a part of that. Uh, but I think the the only problem with that argument, I think, is that it's very incoherent what Prigozhin is asking for. You know, what Prigozhin was upset about is something very particular to him, that they were going to fold Wagner into the conventional Russian military. And the soldiers, as you mentioned, they're sort of contractors, they're mercenaries. They were going to have to sign papers with the Russian military. So they were going to, you know, in a way, become more normal soldiers. And Prigozhin was going to lose his unique position in that uh, ecosystem. So I guess he was petitioning the czar to keep his privileges. But it's a, you know, it's a pretty uh, unique kind of petition. Uh, it's not like in 1905 when you had a revolution after the Russo-Japanese War, and you had, you know, an Orthodox priest and others who brought a petition to the czar to make certain changes. And it was really a kind of political set of claims. I think Prigozhin is making claims about Prigozhin himself. And, uh, you know, that's that's just an indication of who he is and in a way how limited his uh, his political agenda is. Fair enough. 
Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University, and we're discussing the war in Ukraine. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Professor Kimmage, in your reading of Russian history, how would you assess Russia's situation right now on the front lines in Ukraine? Does the Russian general staff have the Ukrainians right where they want them, or, or is the incompetence Russian displayed in the opening months of the war kind of remain the status quo? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that the Ukrainians are making sort of slow, incremental gains, uh, and there have been some rather significant things that have taken place on the battlefield to to make that uh, possible for Ukraine. But it, it, And you mentioned the in-depth defenses that the Russians built over the last year, really, uh, behind, in their lines. Where, where do you see this going right now in, in the next, say, couple of months? I, I don't think anybody could argue, and, and certainly Prigozhin wouldn't, and, and, and many of the people who speak candidly in, in Russia, I don't think anybody could argue that Russia has Ukraine where it wants it or has the Ukrainian military where it wants it. The Ukrainian military is growing in power uh, over time, uh, and you know it's pushing against Russia. I mean, this is really shocking given the kind of initial Russian war plans, what they expected to happen, which was which was pretty crazy. But you know they were speaking of toppling the Ukrainian government in February 2022. Now they're defending, sort of push back to a degree uh, on their heels and trying to hold on to territory that they've uh, taken over the last uh, eight years. So I think it's very very difficult to argue that this is a good situation for Russia or, um, you know, sort of one in which Russia holds uh, even a lot of the uh, of the cards. But, you know, I would sort of give an in-between answer to your question, because I do not think that this is the total debacle that the war was for Russia, let's say, in its first six to eight months, right? You had the assault on Kiev, uh, not only the Ukrainian soldiers push back, uh, but Russians turn tail uh, and run, leaving lots of equipment. And that happens again in September, October. You know, obviously very ill-prepared, bad generalship, um, low morale on the part of the soldiers. And, you know, it's as if the whole military venture in Russia was just not organized for the battle that they ended up fighting for the first six months of the war. And I do think that Russia has learned a bit since then. You know, I don't know if I would say a lot, but uh, a bit. Uh, and, you know, they've uh, modified some of what they do. I, you know, this is a little bit outside of my sphere of competence, but I think in the area of drone war warfare, uh, Russia is probably making a little bit of uh, of progress. And of course, Russia has enormous resources to bring to bear on this conflict, so they can keep spending them. And there's something very profligate about that. But, you know, in a sense, they can kind of keep prosecuting the war. I would also factor in what I mentioned earlier about grain and Ukraine's economy and society and, and ability to fight the war for the long term. Russia's eating away at that. Mm. Uh, and how successful they'll be, I simply don't know. But it's, it's not uh, an irrelevant factor uh, in the war. So, you know, Russia is able to push. Uh, and I don't know how it feels for any of the military figures, I would imagine pretty awful. I think if you shift your focus from them to the political leadership in the Kremlin, I'm guessing here, but I think they feel that if the war is going to become a waiting game, that some of the assets are on the Russian side, that they're going to just be more resolute, more gung-ho about this war, uh, not than Ukraine, but then many of Ukraine's uh, backers, and they're sort of making that calculation and that sort of bet. Now, if that's their best hope with the war, that they can outweigh the adversary, you might want to you might want to ask some probing questions about what kind of war the Russians are fighting. But I do think politically, when you look at the Kremlin, that does seem to be sort of the atmosphere. So it's a slog. It's miserable. It's not the war that they would have wished to have fought. But there is not the incentive at the moment in the way that they've set things up to scale back, pull back, or even fundamentally to rethink what they're doing. 
Uh, so you mentioned the the political situation in in Moscow uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, to me, it looks like Vladimir Putin created uh, a sort of a bunch of uh, equally powerful antagonistic groups in orbit around him, and he pits one against the other to sort of keep them off balance. Uh, and it and that further secures his position. Have have any of these groups, you know, the FSB, uh, military leadership, the the the, the hyper wealthy oligarchs, the Rose Guardia, their their version of the National Guard, or any others, moved into a position of greater dominance uh, inside the political circles in the Kremlin since the invasion began? Do you see any trends wherein one of the core groups is consolidating power or could consolidate power quickly? Uh, to sort of more influence Putin or or potentially even displace Putin. Yeah, this is a, a, a this is a great question. I mean, I think that to me the clearest part of this puzzle, the clearest piece, is the oligarchs, and they've been the losers uh, in the situation. It's not as if the oligarchs were particularly powerful before the war. One of the things that Putin did was to neutralize the oligarchs, uh, some of whom had brought him to power in the first place, uh, in the first ten years that Putin was. Uh, in power. So he consolidates the powers of the state, puts the media under state control in the first 10 years that he's uh, Russia's autocrat. Uh, and the oligarchs now, you know, they just have to fight for crumbs that come from the big boys table. Uh, and, you know, if Putin would be overthrown, or if the system would start to unravel, the oligarchs would lose uh, whatever wealth they have. So they're in a highly dependent position. I don't think that the oligarchs are in any sense well placed to either consolidate power within that system or even more to, to, to threaten the power of uh, of the Kremlin or what's referred to as the uh, the sort of power vertical, the uh, the security services that are have, have from the beginning been the locus of power uh, in the Putinist system. I would have to assume this is a hard thing to judge uh, from the outside. The famous quote of Winston Churchill comes to mind that observing Soviet politics, he said, was true, I think, for Russian politics is like watching bulldogs fighting under a carpet you know eventually you see the kind of bones fly out from under the carpet and something emerges but you don't know what the fight itself looks like and i think that that sort of applies uh, at the present moment but i would have to assume that the military has been much empowered because they're you know sort of funding is a lot greater uh, and they're just part of the action uh in a uh in a new way uh whether rosguardia or various wings and divisions of the intelligence services are empowered one relative to the other is not something that I know, but, um, you know, the Wagner story is is kind of instructive. I mean, this is really a kind of crazy, sprawling, rogue mercenary group, uh, which has a huge record of atrocities uh, and crimes uh, behind it. Prigozhin himself was in jail for uh, much of the 1980s and really comes from the kind of Russian-Soviet uh, criminal underworld, uh, and he was able to leverage the war in such a way as to gain financial power, military power, and political power. Uh, and that just happened haphazardly somewhere on the battlefields of uh, of uh, of Ukraine. So I think what that demonstrates, it's not a great answer to your question, John, but it's sort of the best that I can muster. What it demonstrates is there's something very fluid, not unusual in wartime, that wars cast up new institutions, powers, personalities, uh, and that's definitely happening uh, in Russia. You know, Putin may be, be able to beat back Prigozhin and sort of put him in place or control him, but other figures like mushrooms are going to start popping up as well because of this chaos that Russia has introduced uh, at the center of its own uh, system. So probably between the military, these private groups, the intelligence services, there's just some new constellation that's coming into being. 
Yeah, I, I had I did a previous show earlier this year. Uh, Doctor David Geo, I don't know if you know him at uh, King's College. He he uh, he actually uh, wrote a, a paper, and we had him on here talking a little bit about the fact that the uh, the FSB, uh, which is theoretically kind of like the FBI here in the United States, uh, but they still have the intelligence collection responsibilities, uh, collection and uh, analysis responsibilities. For all of the former Soviet states, which Ukraine is one of them. So it wasn't GRU, Russian military intelligence, responsible for assessing Ukraine's capabilities. And it wasn't even uh, SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service. It was FSB. And they so po- so badly misread what Ukraine's response would be to the Russian invasion that I have to think that the FSB has, has been somewhat uh, I, I taken down a, a few notches in Putin's eyes. And, and secondarily— uh, shortly after the, uh, the the coup attempt, so to speak, uh, on Prigozhin's part, uh, Putin uh, reinforced uh, the Rose Guardia, the, you know, their National Guard, which he created in 2016, by the way, uh, roughly 320,000, 350,000 men reporting directly to him rather than through the Ministry of Defense. Uh, he has reinforced them with uh, with tanks and uh, planes, special forces. So, is there is that some of the shift that you're seeing as you study the you know being a Kremlinologist, so to speak? Well, those are all very very helpful uh, and uh, instructive points. I mean, Putin. It's 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 ironic at the at, at at the very least that Putin is created by the FSB. I mean, it's the successor institution to the KGB, where Putin gets his first. Job and and Putin is surrounded by figures that he got to know uh, in the FSB. It's probably been the most uh, assured way to to get power in the Putin system is to have some set of connections there, uh, and it's been a key institution. Uh, and you know, here you see some of the ways in which the Putin system undermines itself uh, from within. Uh, the extreme corruption uh, that Putin has imposed on Russia is reflected in the FSB in, in a way that really made the war. Uh, sort of a catastrophe for, for for Russia. I think that the FSB spent huge amounts of money in Ukraine that just vanished, that just disappeared, but they claimed that they were buying Ukrainians off and creating loyal soldiers of, uh, of the Russian Empire in Ukraine, and none of that turned out to be uh, true. And then this kind of sycophancy and telling the boss what he wants to hear is something that contributed to the whole uh, disaster. So I'm sure that's rebounded poorly on the uh, on the FSB. I mean, Putin, I suppose, can juggle all this stuff. And I think that they all collect and report on each other, um, which doesn't sound like a very nice work environment uh, and certainly not a healthy, you know, sort of psychopolitical uh, situation. But it's the way in which Putin tries to sort of deflect uh, and keep any kind of potential rival from coming uh, into view. I would imagine for Putin that preventing any kind of rival is much more important than the overall competence and performance uh, of the system. You see the kind of results that that uh, that that uh, delivers. But, you know, the extreme mediocrity of the figures at the highest echelons of the Russian military, Shoigu and Garasimov, who in a normal military, I think, would have been fired at this point. <laughs> uh, the extreme mediocrity of the Russian military is also a factor here. I mean, Putin cares, again, more about loyalty than performance, uh, and that's a huge impediment to many of the ambitions that he has. So I don't know how he juggles all this stuff, but the results are results that explain Russian underperformance and strategic incompetence in a number of very important ways. Uh, just to follow up on that uh, briefly before we, we take a, uh, a little commercial break, y- your ideas here are very much in line with uh, CIA Director uh, William Burns, who was speaking at the Aspen Security Forum just recently 
where he's basically he thinks the Russian elite are, are starting to question Putin's judgment a bit and that Putin really is <laughs> fighting for his political future right now. Uh, we'll see how, how that, that shakes out. Uh, Professor Michael Kimmage, we're going to just take a short break. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here on National Security This Week with our guest, uh, Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Uh, professor, I want to switch over to the Ukrainian side of this equation and concentrate a little bit on Ukraine and uh, relations with, uh, with, with the NATO alliance. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, has, in my opinion, demonstrated sort of a master class in crisis management and political leadership under some pretty dire circumstances since the war began. Uh, as you look at Ukraine and, and Zelensky, how do you read the political situation in Ukraine these days? There are, there are obviously competing political interests inside the country, despite the conflict. That's just human nature. Are there any factions inside Ukraine that could undermine uh, Zelensky's pursuit of reform initiatives, even while the war is going on, or the overall war effort itself? What about Zelensky's challenges from ultra, ultra-nationalist Ukrainian groups in the Donbass region? And, and finally... Uh, I'm sure you probably saw this, but uh, current U.K. Defense Minister Ben Ben Wallace uh, was quoted saying that the Ukrainians should be, quote-unquote, more grateful (laughs) for the support they've received from NATO and other nations around the world, that that NATO isn't, you know, Amazon and and cannot provide whatever Ukraine wants within two shipping, you know, two days of shipping. Has, Has Zelensky been too demanding of the NATO alliance with regard to aid of all types? So interior challenges to to Zelensky— and then, you know, his relationship with the NATO alliance. Sure. I think that to start uh, on the more critical side, I think that the hardest part of the job for Zelensky at the present moment uh, is reform and the reform uh, agenda. This was not easy uh, before the war. You know, the core problem in Ukrainian politics, I would say, is the relationship between executive and judicial power, uh, not just between the figure of the of the president, but, you know, sort of executive power writ large and judicial power. These overlap in a lot of ways in Ukraine that are not uh, good for the country. And that's really difficult to break up. I think that Zelensky's instincts and intentions are uh, are good. Uh, but this was hard for Poroshenko before Zelensky, and it's been very hard for Zelensky. And I just think that the war you know, it's not as if the war is making things worse necessarily, but it just takes all of the time and energy and puts it onto other uh, projects. Uh, so, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, sort of tricky, and I think it's going to remain tricky. It looks like because the country is under martial law that there will not be a presidential election in 2024 as the Constitution, uh, you know, sort of uh, put on Ukraine's schedule. Um that's understandable. I don't think that that will be a problem for Zelensky internally or internationally, but it's, you know, it's something to watch. You know, I think that uh, the war has empowered him in in unique ways, and he's going to have to figure out ways to constrain some of that power uh, himself. I don't have huge worries about that. I think it's manageable, and I don't think that he's, you know, a kind of autocrat in the making. But those are the, you know, the things that I think he's going to have to work hard on, uh, and that will not be uh, sort of givens for him and won't just fall into his 
uh, his lap, the reform agenda and the whole question of how do you sustain a democracy uh, in wartime. I would urge Zelensky and his aides to study the 1864 election in the United States, which was also done under duress with a lot of difficulty. But I think looking back, it was great for the U.S. that there was an election held in that year uh, and that it just sort of kept the continuity of government uh, up and running for a long time, uh, for a long time thereafter. Uh, you know, I think uh, on uh, the issue of far-right nationalism, you know, I think this is an issue in Ukraine. I think it's probably issue number 100 uh, after all of the issues that come front and center uh, with the war. All wars release a kind of hatred. Uh, there's no way of preventing that. Uh, I don't think Ukraine is unusual uh, in the degree of anger that's there toward uh, toward Russians, you know, it's 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 something to keep an eye on. Uh, the government of Ukraine has to try to control uh, some of that, but I just don't think that this is, you know, a grievous problem. Uh, you know, sort of a uh, or even a top line uh, a top line agenda. Um, all of the effort of the country is going toward either survival or toward the fighting of the war. So, you know, people don't have the time or the energy to mount big scale far right nationalist movements and that's just not um in a sense what's happening uh oh we may have lost professor kimmage's the problems of the of, of the zelensky uh of the Zelensky period now the nato question is really really hard to pin down um you know i think there's a glass half full and a glass half empty version of this for zelensky and i think he's doing as well as any ukrainian leader could on this because it's not really a Ukrainian dilemma. It's more a dilemma within NATO about how to do things and how to uh, how to go forward. So the glass half empty is that Ukraine hasn't made that much progress since 2008, the Bucharest NATO summit, when it was promised that Ukraine and Georgia someday would be NATO members. And that's kind of what we heard this summer at the Vilnius summit. Uh, and you could be frustrated about that and say, well, you know, we kind of were where we were uh, many years ago. And, you know, the alliance hasn't moved as fast as it should in terms of Ukraine's uh, potential NATO membership. That's the glass half empty approach. And my personal opinion, I could very well be wrong about this, but I'm just offering this as a as a guess is I do not think in President Biden's first term, if he has two, I don't think his first term is going to be the term in which he admits Ukraine into NATO. And if Biden doesn't do it, it doesn't really matter in some ways what uh, the other NATO uh, leaders say, because it's just not going to, uh, it's not going to happen. So maybe in a second Biden term, and, you know, we could speculate about the election in this regard, but I just don't think that the membership issue is going to come up anytime soon. So that's you could look at it as a kind of glass half empty. But I'm not sure that that's the right way, way of looking at it, because the glass half full approach is that Ukraine has traveled a huge distance from where it was two years ago in terms of the kind of support that it's getting. I think that there could be a kind of halfway set of security commitments that Ukraine gets from the U.S., uh, and some of its NATO partners, maybe under the NATO flag, maybe in some other capacity that amounts to something that's almost as good, maybe as the Article 5 commitment to NATO, uh, and that could work for Ukraine. And that's a large part. A large part of that is Zelensky's advocacy, his ability to speak to different audiences, the kind of grassroots way in which he gets populations uh, of countries to support Ukraine. And that might be the really important story. So there, I don't think that it's that Zelensky has dropped the ball at all or you know, been too pushy or frustrated defense ministers from uh, Britain or other countries. I think he's successfully made the case for his country. Uh, and I think that that's registered. And I think that that's true sort of from Washington to Berlin. I don't think Zelensky has much of a case that he needs to make in Warsaw and the Baltic republics because those countries are, you know, sort of super pro-Ukraine 
to begin with. So I think from a Ukrainian vantage point, I would say that this is basically a success story, that the case has been made and the case has been heard. But if we make it only a conversation about NATO, you can. it often seems like not much is really happening or moving that, that quickly. So I would broaden it to a, a larger conversation, and then it becomes, I think, a little bit more optimistic for, for, for Ukraine. Uh, so UK's defense minister, Ben Wallace, making that statement that Ukraine should be more grateful. Is he, is he totally out of bounds uh, on this one? I mean, it sounds to me, every time I hear a Ukrainian political leader, including Zelensky, talk, even the, the average person on the street that gets interviewed, they are truly grateful to the NATO alliance and, and the West for the support that they have received. What what was, I mean, do you see some sort of hidden message there from from the UK being delivered to the Ukrainians over that statement of they, they should be more grateful? Or am I just overreading this? There may be interpersonal dynamics that, that I'm not aware of. And sometimes people just get rubbed the wrong way and they respond with comments like these. I think it may be a little bit of domestic politics in the, in the British context. And I think, you know, it's a kind of... Uh, uh, needle that that President Biden has to thread as well. People like to see, you know, if you look at polling data, people like to see support for Ukraine. But I think, you know, British, American, other publics don't want it to be unconditional support as if Ukraine is setting the terms and, you know, other countries are just following. So maybe that's another thing that, uh, you know, sort of uh, Defense Minister Wallace was trying to say that, yes, we'll support you. But, you know, <laughs> we're kind of independent in this relationship and we call some of the shots uh, as well. And that can have a, a domestic political uh, resonance. You know, in the German case, since I'm speaking to you from Germany, Ukraine had an ambassador to Germany. They've since pulled him uh, out who was really forward leaning in a lot of his rhetoric. And he would try to shame German politicians into supporting Ukraine. That to me is not the way to go. I think that that can kind of backfire. I don't think that that's what Wallace was talking about. But, you know, it's a sort of threshold or a fine line between being very persuasive, urgent on on, on, on a matter of, of, of enormous significance to Ukraine and sort of overdoing it and, and feeling like you're entitled to support when uh, when that support has to be has to be earned. But I haven't found that to be a Zelensky problem. You know, a level below Zelensky, people vary from 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 person to person. But, you know, I think Zelensky has uh, almost all of the time struck the right tone. So a little more on that on that NATO thing. You you mentioned that uh, you know obviously Ukraine was not approved for NATO membership at the last uh, summit. Uh, it's really sort of President Biden said that now is not the time for Ukraine to be considered for membership uh, at at the summit in the Baltics. Uh, if the Ukrainians succeed in retaking territory uh, that Russia seized back in all the way back to 2014, if they if they push Russia co- completely out of their their territorial boundaries. Uh, from uh, from the t- 2014 timeframe, should should NATO immediately offer Ukraine full membership? I mean, is that sort of a trigger uh, that would prevent Russia from then turning around and continuing to attack uh, Ukraine or Ukrainian interests? Are, are there other measures that NATO might take now? I mean, right now, while this conflict is going on, to sort of remove Russian fears or objections to Ukraine becoming a NATO alliance member? Or is this just an absolute... There's nothing that's ever going to change the mind of Vladimir Putin regarding Ukraine being a part of NATO. Yes, I, I think the latter uh, is absolutely correct, that there's nothing that's going to change, uh, you know, sort of Putin's mind. A scenario in which Ukraine takes back all of its territory back to 2014 borders is a dream scenario for Ukraine. It's a dream scenario for all the countries that are supporting Ukraine. It's definitely not a dream scenario for uh, for Russia, which will remain a nuclear power, which will remain, you know, not an economic superpower, but not an economic midget 
uh, either. And, you know, a country that's capable of mobilizing a lot of conventional military uh, force as well. So I don't think that there's a magic key to this problem, whether it's NATO membership for Ukraine, security guarantees to Ukraine, um, or even very large scale battlefield successes. Um, I think the Russian will to make mischief in Ukraine, to cause harm, to cause damage, to damage Ukrainian infrastructure. If they can't make Ukraine a part of Russia, and that seems increasingly dubious to kind of break Ukraine and, and hand it over to the West as something that's broken, I think that that's sort of a Russian uh, posture. Uh, I think that what we have to factor into the region is Russian adversity for just a very long time to come. With Putin, post-Putin, what has to be acknowledged, it's a surprise to me and it's a disappointment, but it's, I think, more or less a fact that the war is popular in Russia. You know, there's polling data to this effect, you know, I think anecdotal data to this effect. It's my working assumption. It's hard to know. You know, maybe people are too afraid to speak out, but I think it is a popular war in Russia. And that tells us something very important, both about Russian political culture and the kind of security uh, ambitions that Russia has. So I think that we have to figure out a long term way of managing and pushing back against this. That's much more like Cold War containment than it is like any other, you know, sort of Second World War, First World War that ends in a kind of clear uh, and uh, and coherent uh, fashion. And so we have to build the resilience on our side and help Ukraine build the resilience on its side to deal with this Russia problem for a generation. That's my strong feeling about this conflict. And so if NATO is a part of that, that's fine. If half NATO is a part of that, that's fine. If it's something outside of NATO that uh, embodies that kind of commitment to Ukraine, you know, that's fine as well. To me, I worry more about patience and sticking with it for the long term on our side than anything else. Even if we would give a NATO commitment to Ukraine, um, you know, if we would pull back from that, that would maybe be the worst uh, the worst case scenario. So the patience, this kind of long term uh, ability on our side to sort of measure up uh, to what the Russia threat is going to be for for years and perhaps for decades to come. That's the proper framing of it. So it's not to evade your question, I hope. I think NATO is a part of the puzzle. It's just um, strangely, NATO is sort of a small part of this larger uh, Russia problem, which is not going to go away. Uh, that actually sounds a little bit like something I just read recently. It was an interview uh, in uh, Financial Times uh, with Tim Snyder, a uh, history professor up at Yale, uh, talking about the fact that the West has so badly misread uh, Putin and Russia's intentions here that, they, you know, we really should think about this as just an it's not it, it's going to be a challenge that doesn't go away ever uh, as long as Putin is in power. And certainly if somebody who's a a Russian ultranationalist were to re replace Putin, that might even become worse. And on the Russian ultranationalist side. So Dmitry Medvedev, former president of Russia, sort of held the job in an intermittent status in between Putin's roles in the in the job, has recently said that if if Ukraine has really significant battlefield success, that the Russians are prepared to use nukes. Now, is that just rhetoric? And I ask this because we are just four days away uh, from the remembrance of the first use of an atomic weapon in war, and that was the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, and then three days later on August 9th uh, on Nagasaki. Are the Russians, re is this just rhetoric? I mean, are they just making threats, or, or, or should the West, should NATO and the United States really take these statements seriously from people like Medvedev? I haven't really, I don't recall if Putin's ever specifically said threaten nukes, but certainly some of the minions have. 
Uh, Putin has as well. Okay. Um, let's you know maybe start with a bit of history uh, and try to understand what's new about the Russian approach. Uh, and then maybe I'll try to identify one area where I think the U.S. should just stick to its guns, regardless of what people like Medvedev say, and then one area where uh, it's important to have, uh, you know, sort of caution uh, and, uh, you know, sort of concern, uh, given the terrible gravity of these weapons. And I think many of us over the summer have seen the film Oppenheimer, uh, which which I thought was a good film, uh, and which reminds us of the the awful potency of these uh, of these weapons. So historically speaking, what's very striking about what the Russians have done over the last year and a half with their war is that they have overrun all kinds of rhetorical policy thresholds uh, that were, for the most part, maintained rigorously during the Cold War. The U.S. and the Soviet Union definitely did a lot of name calling during the Cold War, uh, and they had lots of ideological competition, and they criticized, uh, et cetera, et cetera. U.S. didn't go to the Olympics in 1980, and you know the Soviets pulled out of all kinds of things. Endless tension. But I cannot recall any Soviet or U.S. leader being particularly reckless on speech speeches about nuclear weapons. You get the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that's not a language crisis. That's a real crisis. Uh, and then a few of the other nuclear crises were sort of circumstantial. They were not about speeches or statements. So, you know, on the Soviet side, they were disciplined during the Cold War about not, you know, going over the line. And Russia and Putin and many of his colleagues like Medvedev have been incredibly undisciplined in the last year and a half. Uh, and they have gone wild uh, with nuclear rhetoric. You have even respected figures like Dmitry Trenin, uh, who's not a crazy you know, foreign policy expert, or at least wasn't until recently, uh, uh, you know, sort of entertaining some of this uh, rhetoric of nuclear strikes. And then I think there was a newspaper article by this figure, Dmitry Karaganov, I'm maybe forgetting his first name, where he suggested a strike on the Polish city of Poznan as a kind of cautionary measure toward uh, the West. That's, you know, um, uh, just a new way of talking about uh, the nuclear age. So I think we have to take note. Uh, that's important to recognize. A major nuclear power is speaking uh, in unbelievably reckless ways about what it may do, thinks it could do, is threatening to do, uh, etc. We certainly shouldn't ignore that. We need to try to figure out what that means. It does not mean, I think, that any kind of concession should be given to Russia under this rubric. That, I think, would be fantastically dangerous on the Western side. The moment you allow yourself to be blackmailed, you're not going to be blackmailed once, you're going to be blackmailed a uh, hundred times. I don't think anybody is suggesting this. I haven't seen this in Germany or in, in the UK or uh, in the US, but this is the way not to respond uh, to this kind of threat and you know, to sort of cower in fear uh, at this language, which may be its intended effect on the Russian side, uh, is really not a smart approach uh, on, uh, on our side, um, you know, because the chance that the Russians are going to use these weapons is very, very remote, and the value that they have as threats, as sort of verbal threats, is quite great. So you don't want to, you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, seed any ground uh, on the basis of what really does fail, feel like a kind of nuclear uh, blackmail. Final point to make, though, is that we do need to remember, and here I will differ from Tim Snyder, uh, who's a brilliant historian and a wonderful commentator on all these things. And Tim said, I think in that same Financial Times interview, that we've done all kinds of stupid things because we've been afraid that this conflict could escalate. I, I don't agree with that. I think that fears that the conflict could escalate are are, are important. 
Uh, and I admire the fact that President Biden has said there are certain things we're not going to do because we just don't want to go toe to toe with Russia. and We don't want things to spin out of control. So things are already at a very high pitch of conflict and tension. These are two countries, the U.S. and Russia, that do have a tradition of talking past each other and misinterpreting each other. And so a degree of caution, maybe that's about signaling, maybe that's back channel communication. Uh, maybe it's just about not doing certain things like sending uniform, uniformed American soldiers to the territory uh, of Ukraine. That's, I think, the correct way to respond to some of this crazy uh, rhetoric. Uh, and three quarters of it is sticking to your guns and one quarter of it is just um, being a bit cautious. So that's the answer I would give to this. I feel like it's the question of the hour, the question of the summer. I'm going to throw a curveball at you that sort of sure. came to my mind while I was listening to you talk. So you've been a student of, uh, of, of Russian, then Soviet, and now Russian history. Uh, and you commented on the fact that uh, in the days of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the Soviets were very disciplined in their approach to things. Uh, and I think, you know, for the most part, the United States was pretty disciplined as well. In the Soviet system... There were significant checks and balances to what the general secretary could or could not do. That does not exist in Russia today, with with Putin being essentially like a czar, an all-powerful czar. Does that mean that we are in—I mean, is, is it a more, dramatically more dangerous position for us in with regards to our relations with, with Russia now today, since Putin is sort of a one-man show in, in, in the Kremlin? 100%. Um... That that degree of concentration of power in anybody's hands uh, is very dangerous. Putin has shown himself to be unscrupulous, uh, a risk taker. We know that from the invasion that he mounted in, in February 2022. The grievances and the malice of the man is is familiar from from uh, from many years back, and certainly from the terrible war that he's been waging over the last uh, year and a half. And the fact that there is nothing to constrain him, you know, no election, public opinion institutions within the Kremlin, there's there's literally nothing there to constrain him uh, should worry and concern uh, all of us. Should we prepare for Putin to lash out in the future? You know, absolutely. Will he? Is that his record? Uh, I think it is his record. Uh, is anybody going to argue against his lashing out in whatever way he may lash out? Maybe he'll hit a satellite of the U.S. Maybe he'll start to hit supply routes into Ukraine. Maybe he'll, you know, sort of do things outside of Europe that uh, are highly escalatory. Uh, all of that seems... Uh, very possible to me, and it's part of what we should be factoring into the the story that we that we piece together of this uh, of this uh, of this war. Um, you know, uh, the, the 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 Soviet Union was, in the end, kind of very bureaucratic uh, system, uh, and what happened uh, is, you know, it became uh, this sort of geriatric uh, system, very concerned with preserving its own perks and privileges. Uh, and apart from the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, it kind of slowed down uh, in the second phase of the Cold War. That's not at all where we are with uh, with Putin. Uh, he's in the midst of a highly kinetic uh, war. And a lot of maybe there's just another point that one could make about what's new about novel about our own situation. The U.S. And, and Russia are much closer to each other in terms of the war that's being fought in Ukraine than in any conflict I can remember during the Cold War. Now, Maybe Vietnam, we could sort of have a debate about this because the Soviets were deeply involved in supporting North Vietnam and had technicians and advisors and were flowing weapons into North Vietnam. So maybe it's not that that different from the kind of role that the U.S. is playing uh, in Ukraine, but it just feels very, very fluid. So it's these two things that are especially worrisome about the current war. 
the fluid nature of the battle space in Ukraine, but there are also other theaters of this uh, of this conflict. You have the fall of the government of Niger in Africa over the last week, where it seems like Wagner troops could sort of move in. You can get a Russian presence, and there you have also French uh, and uh, and British and U.S. military forces that are sort of in the region. So there's another where where another place where you know these these things could mix and combine. Uh, in dangerous ways. We've got that fluid battlefield situation, which is in and around Ukraine. And we've got an autocrat who's somewhat unhinged uh, and not constrained. Uh, And so, again, it's not a reason to cower in fear and to do nothing or to pull back the kind of support we're giving to Ukraine. But it's a part of the equation of this war. uh, And it's deeply disturbing. So you and I, before we got on the air, you were mentioning that you have another article coming out here about uh, Russia's investment in in Africa. So I'm going to ask you a two-part question, give you an opportunity to talk about that article. Uh, what what is it exactly that Russia is doing in on the African continent to to sort of uh, influence uh, political, economic, and military situation there? And then more broadly, uh, Russia has really been courting their fellow members of the BRICS. Uh, do you see any? I mean, what's the is this is the balance of power in the world fundamentally shifting towards the the global South being sort of the power broker between support for China, Russia, and, you know, what they stand for, uh, and then the Western liberal democratic order? I don't think that there's a fundamental shift. I think in some ways, from the vantage point of the U.S., from a city like Washington, sometimes these parts of the world are not quite as visible, so we don't pay the attention to them that we should, and then we're very surprised when they don't seem to be on the same page as, as, as we are or have, you know, sort of a different way of looking at things. I don't think that India is trying to create a totally new system or break from the United States or even align itself with China and Russia in the war. The reason that India is not a part of the coalition supporting Ukraine is that it has important trade relationships with Russia and it buys arms from Russia. And it just doesn't want to stop doing that because the U.S. tells it to. And that's, you know, that's a normal state of affairs in in international relations and maybe frustrating for the Biden White House, but not the end of the world uh, by any means. So that's you know, part of the current situation is that the, just that the world is a complex place with many different bases of power, and each of them is uh, is reacting to the war in Ukraine in in in, in different ways. But that's not uh, especially shocking. You know, sort of two points about Russia and Africa. Um, you know, to follow up on that larger point of just uh, international complexity, Russia has not been that bad for its purposes at leveraging the war diplomatically in a number of different parts of the world. It's not been such uh, a failure. Sometimes we develop this narrative that Russia is only incompetent and only able to mismanage the war. Uh, and we do ourselves a disservice when we frame things in such uh, categorical ways. Uh, Russia has found ways of speaking to populations in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Africa and Asia that resonate. And what Russia does not do is persuade these countries or populations that the war is a good thing. Nobody, I think, outside of Russia thinks that this is a good war. But they make the case that other countries, especially the U.S., also do this kind of stuff. The uh, U.S. is not so pure. Um, and this is maybe a moment when countries can break free to a degree uh, of uh, of Western leadership. So that's at least aspirational for Russia. And some of that message has resonated. So that's interesting to watch. Uh, and that's what you could describe as maybe a part of Russian uh, soft power. And this has been especially important to Russia because it maintains economic relationships at a time that it's lost its economic relationships with Europe uh, and the U.S. And this matters for the way that Russia can continue fighting the war. So this is not by any means a, a sort of story of failure for Russia. It's been a relative 
uh, success story. But the final point that I would make, and this takes us back to the grain deal and what Russia is up to in Africa, is that the kind of criminal underbelly uh, of the Putin Kremlin, the criminal underbelly of Putin himself, which was maybe a little bit hard to see before the war and has become very visible since the war, he's really showing that uh, when it comes to the basic way that he deals with, especially the countries of Africa, because he's not making a good faith effort at diplomacy. What he's doing with grain is basically saying, I'm the boss. I'm going to sit atop global grain supply and I'm going to determine the grain price. Now, that does give Putin a real kind of power. Uh, but I think if you're looking at Putin from Egypt or other countries that are dependent on this grain supply, it looks like bullying and thuggish behavior. So I wonder if Putin is not going to undermine some of the quote-unquote diplomatic progress he's made since the beginning of the war with this thuggish behavior. So, you know, uh, one step forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back, that seems to be uh, the rhythm of Russian diplomacy. Uh, Professor Michael Kimmage, we're, we're almost to the end of our hour today. I just, I am always astounded how fast the, the time goes by every Wednesday. What haven't I asked you today that I that I should have asked you? Is there anything re- really important that we should uh, that we should cover before we let you go? Uh, you know, the final point that I'll make um, uh, in terms of big push, big picture questions, because this is what you asked about about the beginning, where does the war stand? Where are we uh, right now? Um, is that 18 months in, uh, Ukraine has come a long way. You know, it's come a long way. It's under terrible suffering. Uh, it's it's a, it's a grim and 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 for civilians of Ukraine, not just soldiers, just a uh, a horrific war. That's as true now as it was at the beginning of the war. Uh, but the country has come a long way. And I think and sometimes if you just look at the kind of battlefield updates from the counteroffensive, you could start to become very depressed about where all of this is going. And it is a depressing war, to be sure. Uh, but that sort of step-by-step, month-by-month progress that the country has made uh, in its capacity to defend itself uh, and in its political positioning, getting closer to Europe and closer to the United States and a handful of other countries, um, that's a qualified success story. That's not something that you're really able to say journalistically at the moment because there isn't a vehicle uh, for saying that. But that's a big picture part of the story, and we don't want to forget about that. So, Professor Michael Kimmage, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you, you there were two articles that have already been published, and you have a third coming out. You had one come out on June 19th, uh, which you co-authored with uh, Maria Lippmann, uh, Will Russia's Break with the West Be Permanent? Uh, that was in Foreign Affairs, is that right? That's right, yep. Foreign Affairs. So has Putin created a rupture that will be difficult, if not impossible, to repair? And then the second article that you did just uh, about uh, twelve day, 10 days later, uh, on June 27th, and we mentioned that one earlier today, the beginning of the end for Putin, question mark, uh, Prigozhin's rebellion ended quickly, but it spells trouble for the Kremlin, co-authored with uh, Liana Fix, also in, in Foreign Affairs. And then you have another one just coming out here shortly, is that right, on uh, on Russia's involvement in Africa? Where is that one going to be published? Correct. Uh, that will come out in Foreign Affairs uh, about Russia, grain, uh, and uh, and Africa. But, you know, I've given you the gist of the argument, John, so your reader, your, your listeners get it first. Okay. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Well, Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning here in Minnesota, but late afternoon for you in Germany. We really appreciate your time. It's great to be with you, John, and uh, you know I really appreciate your terrific questions. Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'll have a focused conversation on the situation in Ethiopia next Wednesday. 
Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody, and a fantastic weekend. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. 